centers. This is a beautiful section of the story. I love it. Um, so let me read it really quickly, and uh, we'll dive in. Start in verse 7. <clears throat> we won't read the whole story today. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well to drink from, uh, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will not thirst to the ages. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. As you can tell, there's a ton packed into those few verses, and we're going to do our best to, to mine it out. Um, beautiful, beautiful truths and very good news. So in verses 7 to 9, we come to this first section here um, about a thirsty woman and a merciful Christ. A thirsty woman and a merciful Christ. We're going to learn a bit more about this woman in verse 18 when we learn that she's had five husbands. And the one that she's with now is not her husband, living in an immoral relationship. But we do get a hint about her condition here in these verses. Look back at the end of verse 6. Look what time of day it is. It was about the sixth hour. That is high noon. It's the hottest time of day. Noon. Um, Jesus is sitting there weary because he's hot and thirsty, but it's... It's noon. It's a time very few people would come to a well. People would come early morning or later afternoon at cooler hours. This is hot. This is the hottest time of day. You don't come to the well at this time of day. Also notice that she's coming alone. Women usually came to the well to draw water for use at home, um, and they would come in groups. Wells were a place of social interaction, of, co of conversation, um, the sort of place you, you catch up on the affairs of the town. Here we have this woman coming at the heat of day and coming alone. And from what we learn about her life in verse 18, it suggests that she's coming now by herself on purpose in order to avoid people. She's coming perhaps as one who bears the shame of the town. People have recognized her as one who's had many failed marriages. For whatever reason, we don't know the reason for her failed marriages. It was either that she hopped from one husband to another, seeking self-centered pleasure and desire, and this husband's not giving me what I want, I'm going to go after another one. Or it was husband after husband was dissatisfied with, with her and divorced her after divorce after divorce. And it was probably a combination of, of the two. And then the one she's living with now is, is not her husband. Probably the man didn't want to take her as, as husband. Um, she's living as an adulteress. So here she comes, bringing her guilt, her, her shame. She's not seeking God. She's not a worshiper. She's not seeking Jesus. 
She's not even aware of who this Jewish man is sitting at the well. She's just coming to draw some physical water to sustain her miserable life. The irony, of course, is that she's very thirsty in another sense. And we're going to unpack spiritual thirst when we get to the end of this section. Let me just say it here. What does it mean that she's thirsty inwardly? I'd say there's two things. She is without inward satisfaction, and she is empty of spiritual life. She's dead, and she is empty of what her soul truly hungers after. She's seeking to find satisfaction in a life of sin, find satisfaction in avoiding shame and guilt, and living apart from true worship of God. So she is thirsty. It's the irony. She's coming to draw wet water. She's very thirsty in another way. And it's to this woman that Jesus says in verse 7, give me a drink. He asks her because he's really thirsty. Remember last week we said that Jesus is a real man. He's a person. Yeah, he's truly God, but he's also a human, just like us in every way. He's thirsty. He's just walked this hard trip from Jerusalem up to Samaria. It's not an easy trek. He's sweating. He's tired. He's thirsty. But he's purposefully also setting up this conversation. And the amazing thing is, is as we read this story, we find out that Jesus never gets a drink of water. <laughs> he's really thirsty, and he never gets a drink until after the scene is over, we assume. So before we move on, let me just comment on how this relates to our evangelism really quickly. So often I share Christ only when it's convenient for me, um, only when it's not getting in the way of something I want. Not like Christ. Um, my priority is often caring for my needs, my wants, my priorities. Get that first, and if those things are taken care of, yeah, then I, I might share Christ with you, or I'll serve you, I'll love you. We get just the opposite here. Christ is very thirsty. And yet he thirsts for something, he hungers for something more than his physical thirst. What is it? He tells us in verse 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's what he wants. That's what he craves. Jesus thirsts and hungers for the will of his father. What's that? Love. God loved the world to bring sinners to himself. That's what Jesus is after more than satisfying his own needs. And the point here is that this is not something beyond us. We say, well, of course, that's Jesus. He's God, right? Well, the point is he's a man. He is thirsty just like every one of us would be. But there's something that he hungers for more than his physical satisfaction, which is the will of God, which is what? The salvation of souls, burden for souls. So just examine your life. I had examined my life, and I just see failure here. What is driving you in your life? Is it merely satisfying your own cravings, merely satisfying your own wants, needs that you have? Jesus had a need. It was water. You have needs. Is that what our, is driving our, our lives? Or is it God's glory, salvation of sinners, and the worship of Christ? So test yourselves. Test yourself in, in just practical service to one another. Do you serve sacrificially in the church only when it's not too inconvenient? Only when you don't have to give up too much? 
only when it's not going to hurt too bad? Do you practically share the gospel only when it won't inconvenience your time and hurt your reputation and lose something you really want? The reason we have salvation is because Christ did not behave that way to us. <laughs> he loved us to the point of laying down his life. And John tells us in 1 John, we must also do the same to one another. It's just a beautiful picture here of the love of Christ and how we should imitate it. So let's move on. It's this request for a drink of water that not only begins this conversation, but it is extraordinarily provocative on Jesus' part to ask this question. Verses 7 to 9, we get his graciously scandalous actions. The graciously scandalous actions. Most Jewish men, regardless of how thirsty they actually were, would not have asked a drink from this woman. They would not have asked a drink from a Samaritan, much less a woman, much less this kind of woman, much less from her own drinking vessel. He didn't do that. And you can see her astonishment in verse 9. She says, how in the world is it that you're, you're a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan, because Jews don't deal with Samaritans. And it's in this question that Jesus is breaking through three large barriers in order to demonstrate his love and to proclaim the gospel and break down the dividing wall of separation between Jew and Gentile and every other ethnicity in the world. Just stick another implication here. I think this is the Ephesians 2 of the Gospel of John. Ephesians 2, you're aware of, is Christ breaking down the dividing wall of separation between Jew, Gentile, every other race that, that's hindering unity to bring one new man in the gospel. That's what's going on in this chapter. We've heard a lot of racial reconciliation in recent times, but this is God's method. God hates prejudice and ethnic pride. He hates it. And through the gospel and the church, he's demonstrated his wisdom and power in unifying those who used to hate one another. Jews hated Samaritans and vice versa. How did he do that? By making the worship of God through the purification of sinners the center point around which all of us unite. That is how God did it in Christ. Say it another way. Any attempt to produce racial harmony that is not rooted in the gospel and in the conversion of sinners is a shallow and superficial method. We often hear it the other way around, that we're accused of being the people who are shallow and superficial, but it's just the opposite. Well, why? Because it's only the gospel that can deal with these hard issues, right? It's only the gospel that can deal with this and bring the two one, break down these dividing walls. Only the gospel can do this. We are not the superficial ones. Let me put it one more way. If you are a believer who's faithfully sharing the gospel, if you're a believer who's faithfully committed to your local church and all the activities of the local church, building one another up in love, loving one another, serving one another, sharing with one another, proclaiming the gospel with one another, you are promoting racial harmony, and I would say in a way more than 
anything else the world could possibly do. You have been doing it. You are doing it. You are doing Ephesians chapter 2. The world is the superficial ones. And this is not to minimize the issues. Rather, it's those who neglect the gospel who minimize the issues and the importance of the regular activities of the local church for this goal. We're not guilty of minimization. They are. So rest satisfied in that. And it's amazing what Christ has accomplished through the gospel. He has done it. He is creating one new man in the gospel. So what are these barriers that Christ breaks down? Well, first, there's three things. The first thing is he's asking water from a Samaritan. Jews treated Samaritans with disgust and rejection. After Israel went into exile um, to Assyria, some remained back in the land, in the area of Samaria, and they intermarried with pagan nations, with idolatrous nations. You can read about it in 2 Kings 17. And as a result, these were not pure Jews. They were mixed with idolatrous nations. They weren't pure. They were despicable half-breeds is what the Jews thought of them. They were also unfaithful to their Jewish heritage, what little they, they had. They actually used their mixed ethnicity to their advantage. Josephus writes about the Samaritans sometimes saying that they belonged to the Jews when it went to their advantage. But then when persecution fell on Jews, they said, oh, no, 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 we, we, we belong to the nation. We're, we're, we don't belong to, to Israel. So they weren't just half-breeds. They were turncoats. Then following the return from the exile, the Samaritans constructed a temple, a substitute temple, not one in Jerusalem, but one on Mount Gerizim that would function as the center for their worship. And they had their own edition of Torah, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, which they rewrote in some places to say that Gerizim is the place where the center of worship should be. So they are apostates on top of all this. And to make tensions worse, in 128 BC, a Jewish man by the name of John Hyrcanus, descendant of the Maccabees, came and destroyed this temple at Gerizim. So you can just imagine, for hundreds of years, this hatred and, and, and angst and disunity between these two groups. And because of all this, the Samaritans were regarded as unclean Gentiles. One author said that Samaritans were thought to convey uncleanness by what they lay, sat, rode on, and even by their saliva. To come in contact with one, to drink after one, would render you ceremonially unclean. And that's true in one sense. In the Old Testament, if you belong to an idolatrous nation, you were rendered unclean. Idolatry makes you unclean ceremonially before God. But in another sense, these were extra-biblical laws that the Jews made to neglect the weightier matters of love and mercy. Jesus came to deal with both of these things. He came to deal with ceremonial impurity. Jesus is never defiled. He makes what is unclean to be clean. And he has come to fulfill the mission of Israel, which they fail because of their ethnic pride and arrogance, and to love nations like Samaria. So in some sense, the Jews were correct. The Samaritans were apostates. They were defiled by idolatry. They were Gentiles cut off from the promises of God. But the Jews were also wrong in their ethnic pride and lovelessness. 
Remember the story in Luke 9, the disciples of Jesus pass through Samaria. They don't welcome them, and the disciples say, Jesus, can we call on fire on them now and consume them? You can just see that this, this hatred is ready to call the judgment of God down upon the Samaritans. But as we've seen, the Jews are in the same condition. Nicodemus, despite his orthodoxy, his purity, is just as defiled, just as lost, just in need of the new birth as every Samaritan is. And Jesus breaks through this barrier. He comes to those who are cut off by their sin, and he comes to those who are cut off by the pride and lovelessness of the Jews, and he offers them the same gospel. It's beautiful. He also breaks through the barriers of gender. Again, a commentator said, according to Jewish sages, Jewish men were to avoid unnecessary conversation with women in general. You can see the disciples' reaction in verse 27. They were astonished that Jesus is talking with a woman when they come back. But this is not just any woman. This is a woman of Samaria. Samaritan women, according to Jewish tradition, were considered to be in a constant state of impurity. They're especially impure. Again, all Jewish lovelessness and pride. But on top of all that, it's not just any woman. This is the bottom rung of not just Jewish society, but Samaritan society. An outcast, a sinner, one that even they would look down upon. And the amazing thing is, is it's this kind of person that the Father's seeking for a worshiper. It's this kind of person that Jesus is after. It's good news. I just think, oh, that I had such eyes for souls. I, I, I cut people off very easy. Reckon people to be hopelessly lost very quickly. I'm very much like the Jews in lovelessness. When I'm confronted with those things that are unlovely, rather than loving as Christ has loved me, I'm often proud and loveless and cold. So I just say, oh, to be more like our Savior here. <laughs> He's so full of love and grace. So you can understand why she responds as she does. How is it that you are asking a drink from me, a woman of spirit? Don't you know that if you share this drinking vessel with me, you're going to be ceremonially unclean? Don't you know that? Don't you know that we're to be hated by one another? What are you really after? Don't you know about our, really, our, our religious disagreements? The interesting thing is Jesus never answers this question of hers. She asks, why are you talking to me? He never answers it. Why not? What do you think? I think because Jesus has come to inaugurate an age in which all these barriers are irrelevant. Through the gospel, none of these barriers matter. Whatsoever. And she'll come to find that out in a few minutes. And that brings us to verses 10 through 12. A life-giving Savior and an ignorant question. Rather than responding to her astonishment, Jesus now turns the conversation around to bring her to himself. Look at verse 10. He offers living water. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink? You'd have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you were a person dying of starvation because of lack of money, a millionaire might come up to you and ask you for a dollar. And you might give it to them. 
But if you only knew how much money they had and the generosity of their hearts, you'd be saying, no, 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 no. You're the one that needs to be given to me. Please give me. That's what Jesus says here. Jesus is thirsty, but she's much more thirsty. And if she only knew the abundance of grace in Christ, she would be asking for me. So notice three things about this offer of living water that Jesus gives her. Notice the prerequisites for receiving it. Jesus said, you must know the gift of God, and you must know the identity of Jesus. It's the Messiah. You get either of those wrong, and you have another gospel. So what is the gift of God here? It's probably referring to the living water. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. What is living water? What are we talking about? But it's probably also referring to Christ himself. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he, he gave. What's the gift of God? It's none other than Jesus Christ and what he has come to provide. And when you know that, Jesus is saying, when you know the gift of God and the Messiah, that's a massive motivation to come to him. If you know the abundance of grace in Christ, that is the motivation to come to him in all of your poverty. Come to him. Second, look at the means for receiving. I love it. It's just the simplicity. Ask. You would have asked him. You want to get living water from Christ? What do you do? Ask. The Gospel of John talks about faith. You believe. You come to him. You receive him. Here it is. Just ask. Ask him. It's a beautiful picture of the simplicity of the gospel. Finally, note the essence of it. What is this living water? Living water was a common expression for flowing water, usually of a spring water, water that's moving. The water in Jacob's well was living water. It was fed by an underground spring. And so that's probably why the woman misunderstands Jesus. She hears living water, okay, flowing water, moving water. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about water which gives life. But we could be even more precise here. In John 1 to 3, we've seen the theme of water over and over and over again. In chapter 1, John says Jesus is going to come and immerse his disciples into what? Into the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is pictured as water over and over again. It's the gift of the new covenant. What's so great about the Holy Spirit? He's going to come and transform your life from dead to living to where you're able to bear fruit to God to have a relationship with, with God. And it's not just the Holy Spirit, but it also involves purification. That's what Jesus has been about. Through his atoning death, he's going to purify sin. And you see both of these in the new birth. You must be born from water and spirit. It's the new covenant promise of a total cleansing from every sin in your life and the gift of the spirit to transform your heart. It's what you need. It's what she needs. Flip over to chapter 7. We won't do it this morning. Verse 37 to 39 clearly identifies living water with the Holy Spirit that Jesus has come to provide. The woman doesn't know any of this. Um, she did. She would have asked for it. But instead, she responds. But she's mistaken him and his water. She got the pre prerequisites wrong. She misidentifies the water. She misidentifies the gift of God. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't have anything to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's thinking of spring water here. But it's not simply a misunderstanding. It's the result of her spiritual condition that she doesn't get what Jesus is talking about. 
She responds only in a surface level way. She's oblivious to spiritual realities. Think about Nicodemus. It was the same with him, right? What, did, what happened? Jesus said, you must be born again. And what does he say? How can I crawl back up into my mother's womb to be reborn? Come on, Jesus. What are you talking about? It's the same thing with her. She's oblivious to spiritual realities. And that's the, the point. Apart from the spirit giving us life, we're blind to spiritual realities. We think in surface level ways. In fact, that's the only thing we care about. Spiritual needs don't even register. Have you ever shared the gospel with an unbeliever and you're you're sharing about Christ and about the seriousness of sin and the glories of of heaven and eternal life and the free gift of God? You're just nothing. They're like, okay, so who's playing football today? They're just dead. What's what's going on here? There's just no awareness of spiritual need, of, of spiritual realities. That's what it means to be dead, what it means to be thirsty. That's what Jesus comes to address, and he's going to expose it in a minute. But this misidentification of water leads to a misidentification of the giver, Jesus as Messiah. The well at this time is easily over 100 feet deep, and Jesus doesn't have anything to draw water with. And so she concludes that he must be talking about some other water source out there. But who does this Jewish traveler think that he is? to propose that he's found now some source of, of water out there somewhere, and we've been drinking from this well that Jacob gave to us for 2,000 years. Who, who do you think you, you are, Mr. Jewish man? Look at verse 13. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Who do you claim to be? The irony is that she's doubly wrong. Jesus is indeed greater than Jacob, and the water he's come to provide is infinitely better than anything Jacob could have ever provided. She comforts herself with this empty religious heritage. It's all unbelievers have is empty tradition, empty religion. They find anything they can latch a hold of, even though it provides zero hope. And yet the well of living water is sitting right next to her. Look at one little thing here. It says, Jacob gave us this well. This word give comes nine times in these seven verses. It's just over and over. The gift of God. Give, 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 give. Jacob gave this well, but God has given his son to give life. Just the freedom of the grace of this water. Which leads us to this final point, verses 13 to 15. Thirst quenching water and a mistaken request. Jesus is so gracious and patient. And when I read this, I just hear his voice of, of love and desire for these women. I don't think he's being harsh. Verse 13, he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty, literally, unto the ages, forever. So let's think of a couple things here. First, what does it mean to be thirsty? What are we talking about when we talk about thirsty? You will never thirst. He's not talking about physical thirst here. He says if you drink this water, you'll be thirsty physically. But the water I give you, if you drink it, you will never thirst again. What does that mean? Well, 
first, I think it means is, what does it mean to be thirsty? It means you have a life that is devoid of spiritual life. You are spiritually empty. You are parched. You're like a parched land, dead, thirsty. Look back at Isaiah chapter 55. Hold your hand here. Look at Isaiah 55. I think this is one of the primary references Jesus is going to, especially the connection with chapter 7, John. Isaiah 55. Beautiful invitation here. One of the ways to understand Isaiah 55 is growing right out of Isaiah 53 because of what the servant accomplished in Isaiah 53. We have this promise and invitation in Isaiah 55. Look what it says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, there's the freeness, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. What is this water? The water that Jesus offers here is what he's accomplished in being an Isaiah 53 servant. Look down at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion, and he will abundantly pardon. What's the water? It is the massive, abundant forgiveness of sins to a life that's full of pollution and death. Look back at Isaiah 44, verse 3. Another example in Isaiah of what, what this thirst is. What does it mean to be thirsty? It means to be spiritually dead and parched. Isaiah 44, verse 3. The Lord promises, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. You see that thirsty land? That's Israel. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. What is he talking about? Israel is a thirsty ground because they're under God's judgment and they're producing no fruit for him. They're dead, spiritually dead. Without spiritual life, they're thirsty. That's the problem of this woman. It's the ultimate problem of everyone apart from Christ. And Jesus says, when you come to him and drink what he offers, the gospel, by faith, You'll never be thirsty. What does that mean? You'll never lack these spiritual realities of fruitfulness and of the forgiveness of sins. But I think there's another aspect. Look back at Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, look at verse 2. I think it also represents a deep spiritual longing. We're thirsty in the sense that we lack what's needed for spiritual life, but we also are thirsty in the sense that we have longings in our soul for satisfaction. Look at verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which isn't really bread? And your labor for what does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Guys, everyone labors for satisfaction. That's what everyone's doing. This woman was laboring for satisfaction through her marriages, and through everything she was after in her life. According to Isaiah, none of that's satisfied. It's all futile. It's empty. People spend billions of dollars every year in America alone for what doesn't satisfy. It's the ultimate folly of unbelief. To be an unbeliever does not mean that you don't have spiritual longings. 
To be an unbeliever means that you go everywhere except to God to meet those spiritual longings and desires. To be dead unbeliever means you seek to fill your soul with anything other than the worship of God. And through his death and resurrection, Christ will so meet our spiritual needs and he will so unite us with God in fellowship in a relationship with our creator that it will satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. That's what this woman is hungry for, even though she doesn't know it, even though she doesn't want it at this moment. Put it this way. The most satisfying state in the universe is being reconciled with your maker, being a worshiper of God. And we're going to talk about that next week. And then, Lord willing, the week after, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a new covenant worshiper? What does it mean to be a one who worships as a Christian. And what does that have to do with satisfaction? It is the most satisfying thing in life. So believer, let me just ask you, you've drunk this water. Jesus says you will never thirst again. That means your spiritual needs are taken care of and you have spiritual satisfaction. So let me ask you, have you been going back to the world for satisfaction? Have you been going back to other things, good things, sinful things? For what does not really satisfy? It doesn't mean we don't enjoy life. It just means the core of your pursuit, the focus of your life, is the worship of God, is bearing fruit of holiness, is enjoying the forgiveness of sins, is fellowshipping with one another, is building up the body of Christ. That is satisfaction. Notice also how you get this water. You drink it. If you're dying of thirst, no one needs to teach you how to drink just give you the water to gulp it down, right? Because you're thirsty. And the call is to remember that. To remember your need every day. Well, this woman still doesn't get it. Look back at verse 15 of our chapter. <clears throat> chapter 4, verse 15. She says, Sir, give me this water. Still thinking surface level. So I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I don't want, man, that'd be great. Have some water. I don't even have to come here and, and face the shame of my life anymore and the possibility of people seeing me. Great. Give me some of that water. Still oblivious, but Jesus now in verse 16 next week, he's going to expose her. Graciously expose her life so she'll see her need, her thirst and come to him. And then he will teach about true worship. That's where it's all going. So it's a beautiful chapter, beautiful for the gospel. Great principles for us. We think of evangelism with unbelievers, how we engage them, motivations for doing so, and also how we present the gospel. And then just remembering your identity, believer. You will never thirst again. Jesus says things like this all through the gospel. You will never hunger again. You will never die, is what he says in this gospel. Do you believe it? Trust him. Know what you have in Christ and live like it. And pursue what really satisfies a relationship with your creator through Christ. Well, we are a few minutes early. Is there any questions or comments on anything that we covered um, this morning? Yes. I was just going to say, I think it goes along with what you were just saying, but I think I was reading John Scott on these verses, and he said that I think it can easily be mistaken that Jesus is saying you only need to like say yes to me and then you never need to come back yeah. to me again. 
Yes, but you obviously refuted that with what you said. Um, you said something about the verb being in a certain tense that actually means keep drinking, like continually drink. Um, and I'm not sure if that's this verse or another one, but I don't know if you have any thoughts or comments on that. Yeah. I can't comment on the tense. I can't pull off the top of my head what, what tense it is in. Um, but I'd say even the, the theology of John would, would show it to us. The idea here is that why are you never going to thirst again? It's not because you just come to Christ one time and then you go on. Why are you never thirst? Because the life doesn't just go into you to be digested. What's going to happen? It's going to come into you to become a spring of life, a well of water. It would transform your nature, in other words. Um, and as you look through John, faith is never one time. It, it perseveres. The best picture of that is the vine and the branches. You abide. You come to Jesus in faith. He gives you these spiritual realities. And what do you do? You persevere in faith every day, drinking from this well of Christ every day, drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking from the gospel um, for the salvation, for the delight of your souls, and for the continuing of bearing fruit. So it's good. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Any other thoughts? Um, I was just thinking, like, uh, how it's it's really cool to see an example of Jesus himself, literally the perfect uh, evangelist, mm -hmm. shares the gospel with someone, and they mistake it for yeah. physical realities. Good. And that happens all the time, and it can be really discouraging Again? when that happens. Yep. You know, so I'm really excited for next week where he... Yeah. Recognizes what they're doing and then turns it. Yeah, it's good. It's excellent. Yeah, don't be discouraged. If, as you're sharing the gospel and it's not registering, it's not your problem. I mean, if you're not being clear, it's your problem. If you're clearly explaining Christ, um, they're not going to get it. Don't give up. Keep pressing it. Keep exposing them with the truth. The Spirit must give life. Um, but that's just what an unbeliever is. It's just incredible. Um, just the. It's like putting a steak dinner before somebody, and they would rather just go home and munch up potato chips. I mean, it's just it, it, astonishing. It's even more astonishing. That's what it means to be dead. And, uh, but he's gracious. <laughs> or none of us would be saved. So. Any other thoughts? I think it's also a good example of, uh, along the same line, Christ, like not, he's not giving them giving that lady a full, complete um, mm. thing that she can't really understand at all. He's focusing on one thing. Mm. And it just reminds me of like when we're talking with our children even, we don't present the whole gospel every time. We're giving them bite-sized chunks that they can latch on to, gets in their head, and then we're continually, like you said, bringing it back yeah. to them um, over and over again. That's great. That's great. Yep. It's really good. Really good. I think that's something I've been growing in, and um, certainly there's a place for the big picture, the whole gospel. If you only have one chance, you give it. Um, but as with children, and, and what we've been doing with our Chinese students, just learning to just take our time and just give bite size and just and impress those on the conscience. So um, not just generalities, but but specifics, character of God, who He is, um, ability to know truth, and. Uh, number of things, what it means to be a, a, a true believer, faith, repentance, all those things, and impress those on the conscience. Um, that's what Christ is doing here. Um, so take your time. So, that's good. Yeah? Uh, one thing I appreciated that you said, um, 
You mentioned remembering your need every day. Mm. I think Bobby was touching on that a little bit where it is a daily remembering our need, not just the one time. Yeah. I got it, and now I'm going to go it's out good. from God's protection and you yeah. know, do it all on my own, but it's a daily coming to him. Um, it says in scripture that he's a shield to those who run to him mm. for protection. So every day running to him and saying, God, I don't have the strength today to do this. I need you to be the one to yeah. do it. It's excellent. It's excellent. Yeah. yeah, the Gospel of John, you get the Spirit decisively by faith in the Gospel. But you want the Spirit activate your life? Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your life filled by faith in the Gospel and all the promises of, of the Gospel. That's how you have the Spirit um, working in your life. And it's just the daily um, abide and trust. So. It's good. Anything else? Any thoughts? 10.08. We're still pretty early. So... Great. All right. Let me pray. We'll let you go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Father, had you not loved the world and demonstrated your love to the world by sending your son, and had you not, through your spirit in love, given us life, pursued us, we would not be saved. And yet you come to us, not to judge the first time, but the world I have life, the world, a rebellious system consisting of every ethnicity, forgiveness of sins and a transformed life to have a relationship with you. And Father, help us to remember who we are. Help us to be transformed by the love of Christ and to pour that love out on those around us. Father, we love you. We ask that you would bless us, prepare us for the service to come, and glorify your name through it. We pray. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.